We are in the book of Revelation, which is a study of the glory of Christ being revealed as Dave has prayed. And we finished chapter one. There's the broadest outline on the board. Um, we divided it up into three sections, the setting and the specifics and then the side effects of the vision, which is recorded in chapter one. But we looked last week at the general outline of all the seven letters to the seven churches in the book of Revelation, which is found in chapters two and three. And this morning, we dive into the first of those, the letter to Ephesus. And um, again, there's kind of a general picture of the way things were. You see Patmos, where John was when he wrote the Revelation, and Ephesus, of course, the first uh, city geographically and the first city in many other ways that we'll talk about today on the mail route that would deliver these seven letters. We talked about the question last week, if Jesus Christ wrote a letter to Grace Fellowship, what would it be? What would he say? What would he commend us for? What would he criticize us for? What would he call us to do? But before we get into it, um, I want to I want to just talk for a moment about just the whole concept of a letter. Period. Um, think about what a blessing it is that God has given us His Word, and He's given us His Word written down in the Scriptures. I know it's an obvious statement, but I want us to think about where would we be as His people without the Scriptures. What if God had chosen not to reveal himself through writings, through scriptures? Like, how would we know anything that was of importance? Like, as Peter says, things pertaining to life and godliness. Where would we get that knowledge? How would we know how to live? How would we know what to do? How would we know what not to do? How would we know how to have marriages and families that honor God or how to work or how to function in society? Most importantly, though, what would we miss? How would we know him? How would we know God? What would we know about him except he choose to reveal it to us? Think about this. We take knowledge of God for granted because we've been raised in a biblical culture. You know, those of us, if we're believers, we've grown in that knowledge to the point where you kind of take that knowledge for granted. What if there was no scripture? In effect, I want us to think of the scriptures as, in total, a letter from God to us and how precious letters are. I know it's a lost art form today. Letters are very seldom used today. In fact, even in business, letters are becoming a thing of the past. Everything is terse, bullet points, email, text, you know, there's no, no such thing as a letter anymore. But those of us that are old enough to remember uh, the age of letters, so to speak, and even more so those that are older than I am, letters were always a very valuable form of communication. How valuable is a letter? Of all the forms of communication, I say a letter is the most important. Now, I know a lot of you, especially if you're younger, you're thinking, that's not true. You're a weirdo. 
But why is a letter, why am I saying a letter is the most important form of communication we can have? It's very personal. Because every letter is to somebody, from somebody. So, as Julie said, it's very personal. If you read someone's own hand, this becomes very personal. You can hold it, and you know that that, when you hold that letter, you know that what? The person that sent it to you, they held that letter. That they wrote it. And so there's a connection with the person. This is a little bit embarrassing, but Debbie and I had a long-distance romance for a long time. We met in 77, and we didn't get married. We met in October of 77. We didn't get married to September of 79. She lived in Mississippi. So for almost two years, we had a long-distance romance. And now I did have some several hundred-dollar long-distance bills. <clears throat> but we also had a bunch of letters that went back and forth. And I know this is not cool, it's not macho, but I'll admit it. I was excited to go to the mailbox. I was, because I had a mailbox at Tuscaloosa, and uh, I would get so excited to go to the mailbox and think, is there a letter? And then I'd get that letter, and I'd be so excited. To re I, I couldn't wait till I got back. I'd read it at the post office, and then when I got back to my apartment, I'd read it again. You know, and probably I might read it again or again. But, you know, you just pondered over things. And it was very precious because it was from somebody very special. And so, and maybe I'm belaboring the point, but I just want us to get the concept of how personal and important a letter is. What is the one characteristic of a letter that makes it most important to us? Is it the quality of the paper? the type of ink, what's the one thing that we're most concerned about that makes the letter most important? Who it's from. If we look at the Bible as being a collection of letters all the way through the Old Testament, you know, in effect, they're letters through, the, through his prophets to his people. Then you get to the New Testament, and the New Testament was in, a, in effect a letter in itself, right? It's you say, well, no, it's the Gospels, and then you have history, the Acts, and then you have the Epistles, and then you have the prophecy and Revelation. But I'm talking about, in general form, the Gospels are a letter. And then the Acts is a letter of the history of the church. And then you come to the 13 letters of Paul, because Paul wrote at least 13 letters. And then the letter to the Hebrews, unknown author, you know, Paul, Apollos, Luke, we don't know. The letter of James from the oldest of Jesus's half-brothers. By the way, Jesus, you know, had four half-brothers, James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. The oldest wrote a letter, and the youngest wrote a letter, letter of Jude. Peter wrote first and second Peter. John wrote, of course, first, second, third John, and Revelation. But here in Revelation, we've got seven letters that are a unit and seven letters that are individual. They stand alone, and yet they stand together as a unit. And I want to ask you this question. What makes these letters different from all the other letters in the Bible? It's something very 
distinctive about these letters, and I'm not talking about really form or composition, but start to say who wrote the letter to Romans. Paul wrote it. Well, but you say, well, but it's the Word of God. Yeah, well, Paul wrote it through inspiration, but Paul composed it. God, through his Spirit, used Paul's personality, his style, his verbiage, his language. So it's a Pauline letter, but it's nonetheless perfect and infallible. It's the very Word of God, but it was not dictated. He, Paul was not a robot, and the same with all the other letters. It's like, and you say, well, that's a mystery. Yeah, it's a mystery. Like Jesus was perfectly God in the flesh, yet he was born of a woman who was a sinner. So same thing. Anyway, what's the difference? Eric's already said it. Who wrote the letters to the seven churches? Jesus Christ. You say, well, John wrote it. John scribed it. John recorded it. But Jesus dictated these so now back to julie's point who who are these letters from christ himself just put the title strong but cold the letter to ephesus um and as we walk through these components of the letter i want you to just think about how um the background or the setting of each letter is so important First of all, at the very beginning of each letter, um, and we'll talk about that in just a minute, but at the very beginning of each letter, there's the command, the command to write to the angel of the church. And church translates ecclesia, which is a, a Greek word that means called out. So the church, who is he writing to? Is he writing to a building? Is he writing to an organization? Is he writing to a club membership of people? He's writing to the called out, the elect, the true people of God that are in Ephesus. So he's not writing to the First Baptist Church of Ephesus. He's writing to the church in Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a huge city, quarter million people or more. So, and there were no buildings so to speak, that were Christian churches. So these were house churches all over the city. So when he's writing a letter to the church in Ephesus, it'd be like him writing a letter to the church in Calhoun County. Is, is that us? Well, hopefully it includes us, but it's everybody who's a believer in Calhoun County. And by the way, that, that's a correct pre, uh, preposition is the church in Ephesus, not the church of Ephesus, which uh, one translation has it that way, but it's important to think about this setting. It was the most important, uh, one of the most important cities on earth. Ephesus, as I said earlier, quarter million people, very civilized, a very prosperous city, sitting on the um, Gulf of the Aegean Sea where the Caister River emptied into uh, the sea there. It's a beautiful setting with mountains in the background. Um, at the time, Ephesus was probably the third largest city on earth, the largest being Rome. 
estimated to be a half a million to a million people, second being Alexandria in Egypt. And Ephesus was probably the third largest city on earth. And I'm telling you all this because I'm telling you up front, when I started studying this, I didn't have an accurate concept or an accurate mental image of what Ephesus was like. I tend to think of these as little communities. But Ephesus was like the New York City of the world. It was um, very um, advanced in many ways. It had major seaport, major land routes went through there. Um, in the middle of it was a central marketplace called the Agora. It was like the ultimate mall for all that region. You know, people came there from all over the world to shop, do business, trade. It was a free city, even though it was part of the Roman Empire and the largest city in the Roman province of Asia. Rome didn't station troops there, which was very unusual, but it was because it was so pro-Rome. It was very friendly to Rome because there was great temples of emperor worship there, the imperial cult where they worshiped Caesar as God, flourished there. Emperors to Claudius, Hadrian, Severus, all of them were worshiped there as God. Socially, it was a city of libraries, many activities. That is a picture of the ruins of the library of Celsius in Ephesus. It was full of intellectual and artistic pursuits, um, famous also for its sports. Um, this is a picture of the ruins of the uh, stadium that was on the hillside of Mount Pion up behind. So the city, it look, overlooked the city toward the harbor, beautiful, would seat 25,000 people. So they have great sporting events there. People from all over Asia came there. Religiously and ethnically, it was a city of diversity. It was uh, full of Greeks who had come there earlier when this, that area was conquered. It was full of the native peoples who were native to that region of Turkey, as western, modern-day Turkey. And there was a big Jewish population there. A lot of Jews settled there. So you, you see, I'm painting a picture of great diversity. Again, think New York City. If you've ever been to New York City, every ethnic group, every religion, well represented. And it was a city gone mad with religion. Temples everywhere, working of magic and sorcery was present everywhere. It was just really in to seeing how tolerant it could be of every religion. Anything sounding familiar? This is one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It's a temple to Artemis, uh, the goddess of the hunt and the goddess of fertility, also known as the goddess Diana. One of the seven wonders of the world, it's set up on a hill, elevated like that. Of course, it's not there anymore. 127 columns, 60 feet tall, 425 feet long, 220 feet wide, gigantic, magnificent. The columns were pure porcelain marble. 36, there are 127 columns, everyone donated by a king, 36 of them coated with gold and precious stones. Diana, um, this is um, the way Hollywood portrays Diana. Pardon me for the slide, 
But that's not, I want you to get a dramatic contrast of the way Diana was, is portrayed today in Hollywood and Artemis. But this is, this is the way they viewed her. It was a grotesque figure. I'm not going to get into detail, but it was just grotesque. Here's another statue that they found there. Uh, that's, a, that's a statue of Artemis from the um, temple. This is a layout of the city. I want you to get the picture that this was a magnificent, well-developed city with great, great beings, great by secular, great secular culture. In the temple to Artemis, priests and priestesses were really just con men, immoral, ungodly. The priestesses were prostitutes. The priests were prostitutes. It was just gross immorality. Um, and yet, it was culturally vogue. It was fashionable. It was like Hollywood. It was like Hollywood. So now, think about in the midst of those trying and unpromising circumstances, a Christian church surviving, a Christian church being established, a Christian church growing and prospering. Um, and yet, I, I painted how difficult it is, but here's the amazing thing. No church in the ancient world in the first century was more important than the church in Ephesus. No church. Why don't I say that? Think about its history and its spiritual heritage. Paul visited the city on his way from Corinth to Jerusalem at, toward the end of his second missionary journey in A.D. 52. Remember, this is written in A.D. 95-96. So in 52, he established a church there. Aquila and Priscilla were left there to, to build it and alongside the ministry of Apollos, y'all remember these names, Acts chapter 18, Acts chapter 19. You remember what happened? Paul came back there in the 60s and spent three years there. That's in Acts 19 and 20, and a riot broke out. You remember why a riot broke out? Because so many people were coming to Christ. Paul's preaching of the gospel was so effective that the temple silversmiths, what? They were losing money. They got mad and had a riot, and they were going to kill them all. And they, Paul and his companions ended up having to leave. So later he wrote back to the elders in Ephesus, Acts 20, saying this, Be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, he was there three years, Savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves, men will arise speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. Those words proved to be very true. Later, Paul wrote to them again as a prisoner. And that canonized letter became the book of Ephesians. Paul left Timothy in charge there at Ephesus and then sent the letters of 1st and 2nd Timothy to Timothy while he's at Ephesus. Later, in the later 60s, about 66 AD, supposedly from 
history, the apostle John shows up. And supposedly, he still has Mary, the mother of Jesus, with him. So he, John and Mary come there in 66, and he starts ministering there, building the church. So think of the spiritual heritage of the godly leaders they had. Paul, Aquila, Priscilla, Apollos, Timothy, John. Tremendous heritage. As many as eight New Testament books were written there uh, uh, to that city originally, the, the Gospel of John, Ephesians, 1st, 2nd Timothy, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and Revelation. Paul also wrote 1st Corinthians while he was in Ephesus. And tradition has it that both Mary and John were buried there. 18 of the 27 books, 18 of the 27 books of the New Testament were written by men who shepherded at Ephesus. I'll admit my ignorance about this. I had no idea Ephesus was so important. So in summary, very worldly city, perhaps the most so in the world, full of temptations and trials for any Christian. It would have been difficult for any believer faced with the idols of money, success, power, politics, athletics, entertainment, fashionable religions, sex, immorality, hedonism. Sound familiar? New York City, Hollywood of the ancient world. But in this setting, Jesus Christ established and started building his church. And it flourished. It flourished. The pressure and persecution made the church flourish because the real church, only the real church, could survive in an environment like that. So the the second element, that's the command for them to write. The second element we see here in, and by the way, I hope you're following along. I'm in Revelation chapter 2, verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write. All right, there's the command. The second element, a self-description of Jesus Christ. All right, how does Christ describe himself here? He says that I am the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven gold lampstands. This is a description taken from the vision in chapter 1, verses 13 and 16, where the same description is given of Jesus. Almost. It's a little bit different. In verse 13, Christ is seen as being in the middle or in the midst of the seven lampstands. Here in chapter 2, verse 1, he's described as one who walks in the middle same word middle meso is there but now the action verb of walking is added so he's walking in the midst of the seven lampstands also in verse 16 christ is seen in chapter 1 verse 16 christ is seen as holding the seven stars in his right hand of authority power and protection here in chapter 2 verse 1 he's described again as holding the seven stars but it's a different root word. The root word in chapter 1 simply means to hold. It's just echo. It's just holding it. But the root word here, it means strongly hold, grip, tight. And if you'd heard this in the original giving, it would have been dramatic. It'd be like in chapter 1, He's described as holding the seven stars. In chapter 2, now he's described as the one who 
grips very strongly the stars. So what do you get from just that change, that more active description of Christ? He went from just being in the middle of the seven lampstands, symbolizing the churches, and holding the seven stars, to now he's in the middle, walking among the seven lampstands, and holding tightly, strongly, those seven stars that represent the church also. Does that give you a different picture of Christ? What, what's the progression of that tell us? It's even more emphatic that he is in the high priestly role of tending to his church. He's moving through his churches, tending to them like a high priest would in the temple. The lamp stands in the temple. He would trim the wicks, replace the wicks, re remove the old oil, put fresh oil in. If a wick went out, he'd relight it. He was vigilant, diligent to be sure all the lamp stands were burning, that their light went forth. So you get the picture here of the high priest in heaven tending to his churches, being sure the light's going forth, doing whatever it takes to keep the light burning bright. And like the image in John chapter 10 where Christ says that all who will come to me, the Father holds in his hand and no one's able to snatch them away. Now Christ holds us in his hand and is in the firm, strong grip of God that no one no one can snatch us away. I mean, it is such a picture of power and protection and authority. Christ rules his churches, and his churches are safe because they're his. What did he say? He said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against them. That's the image that I get from that. All right, but now we come to the real meat. And that is, well, let me ask this. Any comments about that? What kind of encouragement should it be to us as a believer that Christ is vigilant and diligent tending to his churches? The angels are the representatives of the churches. So it's a representative image of God holding the churches is what, that's, all scholars agree that Whoever the angels are, some believe they're messengers, human messengers, like priests or pastors or diplomats for the church. Regardless of whether they're men or heavenly beings, everybody agrees they represent the church. I think that's a great point, Dave. And, and you know, Matthew 18, you see the image of there being guardian. And I hate to use the word guardian angels because that conjures up the kind of Hollywood, um, you know, Hallmark card images. Uh, well, anyway, but, I mean, these are mighty warriors. They're not little seraphs or cherubs. They're, these are great warriors, the most powerful creatures. And as we'll see later in the letter, he threatens to take away their lampstand if they don't repent. So the glow of the lamp is symbolic of the church's testimony. It's gospel witness. And so if the church is not careful to obey what Christ commands, you lose your light. You can still be a church, but you're a dead church. You can still be a church, but you're a dark church. 
and I think Debbie's got a great point is that from a persecuted church, this is much more comforting and encouraging. Um, well, let's, let's get into the commendation. And obviously, um, we're not going, there's seven elements to every letter. We won't go this slow on all seven, but Ephesus is the most important. And you see how it kind of lays a groundwork for all the other six. So here's the commendation. First thing they're commended for, look at that in verse 2. What does the one who walks among the seven lampstands, the one who holds the seven stars, what does he say? What does he dictate to John to write? Write this. I know. I know what? I know your deeds. The first thing he commends them for is their works. Ergo, we get, you know, um, energy and things like that from the same root. It's energetic activity. The church in Ephesus was working. And in the midst of persecution, in the midst of um, discrimination, they were highly discriminated against. By the way, when you walked into that giant mall, there were incense stations and you had to make incense presentation to the Caesar as God. So think about if you're a Christian, you don't even get to, you can't conduct business. Labor, the next element they're commended for is their labor. Because he says, I know your deeds and I know your toil. The word for toil is kopan. It means hard work to the point of perspiration. They not only had works, they toiled at their works. They also had perseverance. Uh, see, he says, I know your deeds, I know your toil, I know your perseverance. This, this word means to bear up under. They bared up under with patience the circumstances of the situation. There's two words for perseverance in the Bible. One means patience with people. One means patience with circumstances. That's what this means. Fourth, they're commended for their stand against evil. Notice it says, I know your deeds, your toil, and perseverance that you cannot tolerate evil men. Literally, it says you cannot tolerate evil. They bear not evil. They were incapable of tolerating evil. This is a strong, doctrinally strong church. Um, they also were so strong doctrinally that they tested falsehood. See, it says, um, you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. They, they didn't just talk doctrine. They tested it. You know, a lot of churches talk about the purity of doctrine, but when false doctrine comes in, it's not put to the test. It would be here. No heresy raised its head without being cut off in this church. Very strong, doctrinally pure church. And think about, again, the background. Paul, Timothy, John. I mean, this was a rock-solid apostolic church. And bear that in mind because we'll get to the criticism. Um, all right, not only did they stand against, I mean, test false apostles, but they took a stand against them. They would not just test them, but then they would call them out as being false. They literally said, you've tested them, found that they are not, and found them to be liars. 
found them to be false. The word literally means liars. They claim to be apostles. They claim to have seen the risen Christ. They claim to have the same authority with John, with Paul, commissioned by Christ personally. They were liars and disclosed. They were revealed as liars by this doctrinally pure, holy, set apart. They were called out, ecclesia, called out people, set apart unto holiness and pure doctrine. Not only that, they were commended for being long-suffering. You have, in the NASB, verse 3 says, and you have perseverance, or patiently endured. Here, it's not just that they uh, bore up under the pressure, but they bore up under the long-term pressure, that over time they still kept on. Which takes us to the next thing where he says, oh no, I didn't get to it, patient endurance. They endured, um, preserving under pressure. And then the next one is that they pressed on. Notice what it says. You have perseverance and you have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. Have not grown weary. They kept pressing on. They didn't give up. This church was not a flash in the pan. When things got tough, they got going. They were a tough, um, persevering church. And then last, you look down to verse 6, one more commendation is that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which is they have proper hate. They hated what they should hate, the deeds of the Nicolaitans. And Literally, the word Nicolaitan means conquerors of the people. There are several theories of who these were, but we know that they were the beginning of the clergy that ruled over people, that morphed into what we see in the Roman church, where you had a clergy that dominated the people, took advantage of them, all the while being immoral, all the while being of the way of Balaam. And some people think these were that Nicholas, the deacon in chapter 6 of Acts, led this, that he became apostate. Some think not, that it's just the term comes from the root word meaning conquerors of the people. They, they were evil workers. All right, and by the way, look at, look at the letter, how verses 2 and 3, the commendation, and then verse 4 and 5, or that's where the criticism and the call to repent is. And then verse 6, there's another commendation. That's a sandwich principle. And I know Carlton Brown and anybody that's been through corporate training would know, how do you criticize an employee? Or how do you, uh, of course, even, you don't have to be an employer, but just anybody, if you want to make criticism of somebody, what's a good way to deliver it? Put the meat in a sandwich. You know, compliment, criticism, compliment. Encouragement, exhortation, encouragement. You know, deliver the meat between two good pieces of bread. Um, but now here, I want to stop and talk about all this commendation. Christ has ten things he's commended him for. And you might think, well, I thought we believed in grace alone. You know, Christ is going 
to great trouble to commend all these good things the church is doing. I thought everything was by grace, like Ephesians, the letter to Ephesians, chapter 2, verse 8 says, By grace you've been saved through faith, that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we, is, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10, there's a verse that says, God is not unjust. Think about this. God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. Why is it unjust? Why is it divine injustice if God doesn't brag on our works? You know, this is a little bit kind of confusing to think about if you think about it from a grace-only perspective. Why is it divine injustice if he does not compliment us for his works? Because, did you catch the phrase in verse 3? It says, after that first list, he says, you've done all this, why? What was the motive? What was the basis behind it all? His namesake. Did you catch it in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 10 I read to you? It says, God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. So why would God exalt our works? Because they're his works. Because they've been done for his namesake. Because they've been done in his name. Because they've been done by the power of his spirit. Because they've been done because of the love we have for him. Am I making sense? Because this means God is not acknowledging the worth of our works. God is acknowledging the worth of what? His name. God is glorifying himself by acknowledging the worth of his name made manifest in his works through us. John Piper said this, What obligates the justice of God to remember our love is not the worth of our service, but the worth of his name. When we serve and work out a love for that name, what we're calling attention to is the worth of his name. That is why the justice of God is at stake in remembering our work and love. When we serve the saints as a way of loving the name of God, God's justice commits him to remember our work and reward us for his namesake. Here are the Ephesian Christians. Some were put on the spot in persecution and trial, and it might end in death. It might end in loss of job. It might end in loss of liberty. We don't know what it would end in. And yet, they thought, Jesus is more precious than what I'm losing. Others, they might be delivered. They might be delivered from persecution. And yet, they would still proclaim Jesus is more precious than what I'm gaining. See, either way, Jesus is exalted and treasured because his namesake is what's important. But I, won't, I just want us to wrap up by this one focus, though. At the very beginning of all this list of commendation, how is the list, which is the same for all these seven letters, in all the seven letters, the list of commendation and criticism begins with phrases like, I know. I know. Have you ever thought about 
the obvious, and yet I think what is an amazing thought, and that is God knows. Jesus knows. Like, have you ever been doing things, and and by the way, this is intrinsic, absolute knowledge. It's oida, not gnosko, if y'all know what those, those root. One is a knowledge of absolute, intuitive understanding. The other is a knowledge of learning. God doesn't learn anything. God knows all things. He knows. He knows it all. So have you ever thought about, like, if you've been stuck in nursery duty over and over and over, and you wonder, does God know I'm tired of this? <laughs> or have you ever thought that you're stuck dealing with a hard situation? Like, what if, what if you're ministering to someone who has Alzheimer's? It's in a nursing home. And it's a labor. It's a toil. It's hard work. And yet no one's there to see what you're doing. But what? God knows. God knows. Um, it doesn't matter what we do. Jesus Christ may be the only one who knows, but he knows. And I just take great comfort in thinking that when we do things for his namesake, motivated by love for him, God knows. And God knows so that his divine justice will commend that and that it results in not just commendation but reward in the life to come. Now, I'm not saying that our only motivation should be for reward. Our primary motivation should be what? The love of his name, his namesake, the love of who God is. The greatest commandment is what? That we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. So therefore, we do what he commands us to because we love him.